Mountain climbing, as it's commonly called, is not just one thing. Some folks climb the large snow and ice-covered peaks of Patagonia, the Himalayas, the Canadian Rockies, and the vast ranges of Europe and Alaska. Others climb short sections of ice and frozen waterfalls, and still others find their way up rock faces of varying heights from 50 to 5,000 feet, and still others do what's known as bouldering, where, with a pat on the ground, they climb small but difficult boulders that are between, say, 10 and 40 feet high. Still others climb completely indoors, in climbing gyms that have become so popular around the world. In addition to all that, there are a hundred different variations of climbing in all the types of climbing that I just named. As in any sport, there are the good, the great, the famous, the infamous, and the superstars. Climbing's no different. Most climbers are amateurs and do it as a hobby, but still others have found a way to make a living at climbing and have become full-time professional climbers. This small group of climbers are covered by this so-called climbing press. They fill the covers of those magazines and they populate the climbing podcasts and appear in climbing films that screen online at adventure film festivals and in some cases even in theaters. A couple of films in the last couple of years have gotten a lot of attention. Free Solo, which featured Alex Honnold on his free solo climb of El Capitan, and The Dawn Wall, which documented Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen's free climb of The Dawn Wall, another of El Capitan's very difficult free routes. Our own film, Assault on El Capitan, was another film in this genre, which featured big wall climber Ammon McNeely. Climbing terminology can be difficult, even for people who climb. So I'll try to give you a brief rundown on some of the climbing styles that we'll talk about in these climbing-related trip reports. In season two, we talked about Maurice Wilson and his development of a style known as Alpine style. This is a style that's used in the largest mountain ranges around the world. It's called going fast and light. It's where you're going to deal with high altitude, snow, ice, and rock, and all of these obstacles have to be overcome. Alpine style climbers go solo or in very small groups and Avoid the siege expedition styles that were so prevalent on early attempts of Mount Everest. In the last trip report, we talked about aid climbing, where equipment is placed and the climber may actually hang a nylon-type ladder on the equipment and stand with their full weight on the equipment and advance up the rock using the aid of the equipment. Free climbing is when only the hands and feet are used to climb the rock. Ropes are used for safety rather than as an assistant. Equipment is placed in the rock only as protection for the climber in case of a fall. There are a lot of people out there these days trying to free climb what was previously exclusively an aid climb due to the difficulty of the rock or the rock angle. Now, free soloing is when a climber climbs with their hands and feet and using no safety equipment, no ropes. If the climber falls, then they will fall to the ground. The film Free Solo was about Alex Honnold's free solo of a route on El Capitan. He was the first climber ever to free solo El Capitan. Now, back in 1980, Lynn Hill was the first climber to actually free climb the nose route on El Capitan. Since then, there has been a push to free climb with safety ropes the hard aid climbs of El Capitan. Now, I'm not going to go into the history of El Cap climbing. There are some great books and articles and films that cover all that material. I'm just trying to give you a little 
cursory overview so we can understand these trip reports a little bit better. Many of the best climbers in the world come to Yosemite to try to free climb these incredibly difficult hard aid routes. Now to figure out which route you may or may not climb if you're in this elite category, the routes are listed in guidebooks and each route is assigned a difficulty rating. In Yosemite, they're based on what's known as the Yosemite rating system. It starts with a class system. Class 1 is perhaps walking down a sidewalk on flat ground. Class 2 might be hiking on a trail. Class 3 is scrambling over low angle rock without a trail where a fall could be dangerous. You might get scraped up or sprain an ankle. Class 4 is scrambling up rock where occasionally using your hands on the rock for balance and maybe perhaps even grabbing holds once in a while might be required. Fall danger here could be deadly. Fifth class is where climbing is. Fifth class is climbing, where hands and feet are needed to work together on holds on the rock and are necessary to make upward progress. That system is divided in ratings from 5.0 to presently about 515C. 5.0 is very, very easy. If I was to take any of you out today with no experience, I could have you climbing a 5.5 pretty quickly. But once you get to the 510 level, it delineates down even more, down to 510A, 510B, 510C, 510D, and then you get to 511. And it goes on that way until you get to 515C, which is where we currently are. But as I record this, that could be going away today as somebody comes along and climbs something that they determine to be harder than 515C, which would then make it 515D. Now the average climber you run into on the street who's been doing it a while can probably climb in the 5.8 to 5.9 range. 5.10 is a breakthrough range where holds get small and you're holding on by fingertips and not hands. Free climbing the big hard aid routes on El Capitan, they often require climbing in the 5.12 to 5.14 range. That is rarefied air. If we tried to make a sports equivalency, these would be NBA players that are in the All-Star game, not just in the NBA. These are the best of the best. Most of us would never be able to make even the first move off of the ground on any of these hard routes. Now, an NBA game is 48 minutes, and they rarely play two nights in a row, and are always in a controlled environment. In big wall free climbing, you may be climbing 8 to 12 hours a day for 10 straight days in all kinds of weather. There is risk all around you, 24 hours a day, for as long as you're climbing. You could make a mistake, but if you make two in a row, it could cost you your life. My name is Jeff Argent, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the High Adventure Podcast. If you've listened to Seasons 1 and 2, I'd like to welcome you back. If you're new to the podcast, I'd like to welcome you and hope you enjoy what we have to offer. This is Volume 2 of Trip Report. We've also started a multi-episode single story called Devil's Domain, so if you've not caught up with that, I encourage you to jump over and check out that story when you get a chance. The trip reports I'll present are the ideas and thoughts of the individual who wrote the report. 
The views and experiences belong to the writer and may not always reflect my personal opinions. All of the trip reports that I'll be presenting are presented with the permission of the author of those reports. If you think you've got a trip report that you'd like us to present, send us a message through the High Adventure Podcast at gmail.com or find us on social media and I'll let you know how you may submit your story. Please do not submit your story before contacting us first. I'd like to tell you about a few things right now that are happening that we're really excited about. First, we dropped our first audiobook. It's called Everest Alone, Maurice Wilson's 1934 journey to be the first to stand on the summit. If that story sounds familiar, it should. We've gone back into the episodes of Season 2 and added a new foreword and an epilogue and edited and remastered the episodes for an audiobook presentation. The episodes are broken into chapters and the story runs about five hours long. The cost of the new audiobook is five bucks. That's it. Less than a cup of specialty coffee that will give you maybe ten minutes of enjoyment. We're giving you over five hours of content for five bucks. You can order your digital download from our website, accidentalproductions.net. At the top of the homepage, you'll find the book title link that uh, takes you straight to the store. For those of you interested in our film, Assault on El Capitan, we have a limited number of DVDs available. The DVD version has over 90 minutes of added content, including a short film on Ammon's base jumping accident and an extended interviews with the entire cast of Assault on El Capitan. The next little thing we're asking this season is for you to help us out a little bit and help us continue to bring you these stories. If you enjoy an episode, please go to our website, accidentalproductions.net, and hit the donate button. We're asking for a dollar an episode. That's all. If we give you any break in your day or any level of entertainment, it would mean a lot to us and, frankly, our monthly expenses if you gave us a buck. We're trying not to load up the podcast with advertising, so anything you drop on us will directly help us produce these episodes. In the last couple of years, we've all witnessed podcasting explode. I get a lot of questions about how to start a podcast and how to manage the media and the workflow of an ongoing show. Well, here's the tip of the day. It's Blueberry.com. Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. And it's the premier podcasting media host. I've tried others, but I've always come back to Blueberry. Here's the thing. To get a podcast out, you have to produce it, you have to upload it, and you have to try to get it on all the podcast platforms out there in the world. Blueberry makes it simple. They give you a WordPress website free that integrates your account seamlessly. You press a couple buttons on the screen and your show is linked to the website and sent to all the podcast platforms. That's it. All of them. And again, tech support is top notch. They have experts that talk you through any question you may have. Blueberry also hosts webinars and their own podcast on how to produce your podcast. There's no contracts. You can cancel any time. You can also easily move your show over to Blueberry from another host. If I get asked about how to start a podcast these days, my first piece of advice is to get a Blueberry account. And you're a couple steps away from being heard worldwide. This trip report comes from my friend Pete Whitaker. Pete's one of the best and most talented rock climbers in the world today. He's one half of the climbing duo called the Wide Boys. That's boys with a Z. Pete and his climbing partner, Tom Randall, were known to seek out and climb what are called off-with cracks. Cracks that are so wide you can't hold on to them with your hands, but 
not wide enough to get your whole body in to be able to shimmy up them. Most climbers avoid climbs altogether that have off-widths within those climbs. But Pete and Tom seek them out, and seek them out worldwide. Pete's appeared in several films and has been on the cover of every major climbing magazine in the world. In 2016, Pete became the first person to rope solo free climb an El Capitan route in under 24 hours. There's a great film on YouTube that Pete made while he was actually making the climb. It was and is a major achievement in climbing, but it's also like watching a horror film at times because as a viewer, you're terrified by what he faces and then amazed by how he manages to actually do it. In this episode, I'm going to read Pete's trip report of a route called Secret Passage. It's rated 513D. That is an unfathomable rating that 99% of all climbers will never approach in their lifetime. And now, Pete Whitaker's account of climbing Secret Passage on Yosemite's El Capitan. The Secret Passage is a free route on the far right of El Cap, put up in 2008 by crazy flute-playing Belgian rock stars Nico Favaris and Sean Villanueva O'Driscoll. Their first ascent was the first time a free route had been put up on El Cap ground up, and having not done the route, I can say this is a class achievement. Although they aided some or maybe all the pitches, I'm not sure, and top roped some, they did go back and lead the pitches, in their words, in a fun style. No fixing, no repelling, just finding the way from the ground up. Again, having been on the route and realizing how run out, dangerous, and adventurous, at least for the valley, the route is, I can't imagine it was very fun. Aside from their great efforts of going in ground-up style, they also placed only two extra bolts. One to back up a belay, which previously consisted of a wobbly peg and a rivet, and one to protect some of the variation climbing around the original routes. Because of this, the original aid routes, which Secret Passage follows, which are Eagle's Way and Bad to the Bone, were kept in their original state, which results in some very spicy free climbing at times. One pitch is protected by a corner of old copper heads, and a lot of other pitches have very run-out sections around scary, friable, biscuit-like features. Although we kept cursing the Belgians for their bolt drill breaking and their lack of protection, their ascent back in 2008 was an inspirational achievement, and although me and my climbing partner Dan McManus both managed to free the whole route, our ascent doesn't quite match up to Nico and Sean's in terms of style. Where they had gone from the ground, we checked out the top three hard pitches from Rappel. Where they were incredibly bold on the lower crux pitch, we had the first piece pre-clipped. Where they took flutes and mandolins, we took phones and sound systems. We had decided that hauling up my musical instrument of choice, which is a piano, was a bit much. That doesn't mean to say I'm not pleased with our ascent. I'm delighted with mine and Dan's performance. It's more to demonstrate that Nico and Sean's ascent was impressive and in a way was maybe overlooked and cast aside a little bit when it was climbed in 2008. Nobody seemed to have heard of Secret Passage in Yosemite, even though it was on the cover of the Super Topo Guide. I'm pleased with mine and Dan's ascent for a few reasons. It's only the second free ascent since the first ascent in 2008. 
we did a team free ascent. So both individually managed to free every pitch on our successful attempt. The first time this has been done. We stuck out on the wall for nine days with just seven days of supplies. We stuck out a two-day snowstorm. We climbed on the wettest part of the wall when a storm was predicted. The route starts and finishes up waterfalls. We topped out the route up a receding waterfall. We climbed the upper crux pitch with the crux hold wet, and that's the photo that you see on the cover of the Super Topo Guide. We'd heard harrowing stories of failed, repeated attempts, but decided to push on. Dan and I had never climbed a big wall together and have only been cragging together a few times. For me, the seed of trying the route was planted the previous year. I decided I was going to make my first trip to the valley to try to climb El Cap. I had the Super Topo Big Walls Guide, and straight away there was Nico pulling the crux of Secret Passage on the front cover. Although I did not get around to trying the route on my first visit, the image was always there in my mind. An unrepeated free route on El Cap? The cover shot? Why had this not been repeated? I couldn't help but try to get back there. I contacted Dan McManus, a Brit trad climbing beast who is gradually becoming an El Cap addict, having now climbed it in some way, shape, or form nine times. Our early attempts in early October started on a ground-up push. Straight off the deck, the climbing kicks in with bold, frictionless water-washed slabs and copperhead corners. On our first attempt, we managed to onside up to the first crux pitch, which is the Flight of the Seagull, 513CR. We both red-pointed this pitch, which, considering the searing heat of 95-plus degrees, felt like a positive effort. However, due to the heat, dehydration, lack of water, and a lot of routes still to climb, we bailed, absolutely frazzled. We had both put in some spicy leads on this first push, and even this low down felt like we'd pushed the boat out on some pitches going big and bold on the leads to get the rope above us. We'd had an appetizer of the route and reevaluated the situation and decided to check out the top three hard pitches on Rappel. The decision seemed sensible as we discovered the real loose rock Nico had described on the route. The guillotine Pirano pitch, the upper crux, held a flake the consistency of a digestive biscuit, three meters long and the sharpness of a guillotine directly above the belay, and it was completely unavoidable for a climber to climb around and for a belayer to move if it was to fall off. We were astonished that Nico had climbed past it and came to the conclusion that he must have been high on flute music to even consider it. A very bold Belgian, Nico is. Dan crumbled half of it from above with minimum effort, and half of it was left for us to teeter around when we finally got to this point on the push. The weather had been extremes for us throughout the trip, from searing hot and Electric storms to three degrees above zero in snowstorms. Good conditions for free climbing, it was not. The weather again seemed unsettled for the foreseeable future, so we had no option but to set off three days before a two-day snowstorm had been predicted. The lower pitches, which we now knew well, were passed easily, and we were soon into new terrain. We had picked what looked like the most sheltered part of the route to bivy out the storm. 
which was under some small roof about 15 meters left of the Horsetail Falls. This is the waterfall which makes up 70% of El Cap's runoff and 40 meters right of the Devil's Brow runoff, the waterfall which makes up the remaining 30%. As temperatures were so cold after the storm, the runoff occurred for the following six days, so we found ourselves stuck between two waterfalls. With our way of retreat blocked by horsetail and our way to the summit blocked by the devil, luckily there were some pitches in the middle which stayed dry and kept us occupied before reaching the devil's waterfall. These pitches went well with the most harrowing moment for me leading past the guillotine biscuit, finding the crux hold was wet, then falling off and ripping out our placed peg. Motivation certainly decreased after this as temperatures had dropped to bouldering temps rather than big wall temps. The winds had picked up and one of the most crucial holds on the route was soaking wet. Somehow the next morning we both managed to pull the pitch out of the bag and finally moved on to trying to fathom how to now top out through a waterfall which was now unavoidable. We had realized there was a pattern with the waterfall runoff. It went something like this. Waterfall would run in the morning coolness. In the midday sun, it would recede and some rock would dry out. Waterfall would run in the evening coolness. Waterfall would freeze in the nighttime and repeat. With this cycle, we had around a three hour window midday where the remaining three pitches were dry. Day eight was supposed to be our last day. We were ready for the final hard pitch. A secret passage, 513A. We both topped it out with Dan finishing the final easy moves of the pitch as the evening runoff covered his holds. Fifteen minutes later, the whole pitch was yet again in a waterfall. We were meant to top out today, but the upper pitches had become unpassable, and having taken seven days of supplies, we were stranded to try to top out on the ninth day. Luckily, water wasn't an issue as we were able to harvest sweet mountain dew from the waterfall next to us. Unfortunately, it didn't taste like the lemon and lime Mountain Dew from the lodge, but instead like it had been filtered through bird shit, which was a common route occurrence. However, we still had gas in abundance, so a nice bird shit brew was in the cards. Day 9, we were up ready and waiting for our midday three-hour window to push to the summit. Thank goodness the pitches turned out to be reasonable, and after some wet rock rambling and some loose rock scrambling, we topped out in the early afternoon of day nine. It turned out to be quite an adventure, and I've got to say thanks to Dan for putting in some fantastic, bold, hard leads and getting the rope up there on his pitches, staying relaxed and feeling at ease that we were trapped by two waterfalls. It was a privilege to spend nine days on the wall with Dan, and also amazing, and against all weather odds, that we both got it free. In September 2020, Pete free-soloed, meaning he did not use a rope or equipment for safety or assistance. He climbed the 2,600-foot face of Kajurig in Rogaland, Norway. I know I've butchered those names, and there's no hope that I'm ever going to be able to get that right, so just live with this. The route was rated 510C. 
uh, he'd climbed through some wet conditions at the bottom, which were a little bit sketchy and a little bit difficult, but he managed to climb the entire 2,600 feet in two hours and 25 minutes. Pete Whitaker is, without a doubt, not only one of the best climbers, but one of the humblest climbers I've ever met. My house is a stopover for several climbers who travel from Europe and are on their way to Yosemite. Each spring and fall, I get clues that I'm going to have some visitors when boxes from climbing equipment companies begin showing up on my doorstep. Climbers will have equipment and stuff sent to my house for pickup on their way to the valley. I put the boxes in their individual gear cache and store them for them so they don't have to ship huge amounts of gear across the ocean and through airports. They come and spend a day or so on their way to the valley and again stay a day or so on their way back to the airport. And in the meantime, we get to hang out and have some meals and sit on my back deck and talk about everything that's been going on in our lives. And sometimes we even talk climbing. Sometimes they bring along friends that quickly become future house guests and a new gear cache of gear finds a spot in my garage. At some point, we'll get around to doing trip reports from each of my seasonal lodgers. But the thing that always is interesting is the humility from the folks that climb at the highest levels. As I mentioned, Pete is a frequent guest, and each time he comes, I ask him if he has any specific plans for that season. And he routinely says, uh, I don't know, there are a couple things I'd like to try, but I don't really know. On one trip, that thing was his solo rope climb of El Cap in 24 hours. Another time, it was he and Sean seven walls in seven days. I read about both these things in the climbing press before I was actually able to see him again. When he came to the house after each of these things, he just quietly smiled and said, yeah, that was fun. Pete was here last fall before COVID had hit, and he had just written a book on crack climbing. He interviewed the best crack climbers in the world, and he compiled those interviews and combined them with information on technique and how to become a better climber, and came up with this really, really substantial and definitive book on crack climbing. I actually did a video book review of this, and you can see it on our Accidental Productions YouTube page or our Vimeo page. Pete's an excellent writer and a, a really fine communicator, and this book is so good, I promise you can toss out all your other books on how to climb cracks. I'll put all Pete's social media contact information in the show notes so you can reach out to him and follow him on the various social media platforms. Keep an eye out for our next trip report by subscribing to this podcast, and please leave us a review and five stars on your favorite podcast platform. And if you get a chance, check out our website, accidentalproductions.net, and our audiobook, Everest Alone. As always, we'll see you at the summit. Lying on his deathbed, watching the picture show. The product of the night, the bottle and some smoke. A boomer's tricks and a woman's
conscious of the show.